Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode. You may know me as a fan of old vampire movies. My favorite is Theranos Ratu. <laughs> Eric, you're terrible. But in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is John Carreyrou, an outstanding investigative reporter for the Wall Street Journal. I was just complimenting him effusively. He's the author of a new book called Bad Blood, Secrets and Lies in a Silicon Valley Startup. It's all about his fantastic reporting on Theranos, a blood-testing startup that sounded too good to be true, and it was. John, welcome to Recode Decode. Thank you for having me. I love the name. Of course, you had to call it Bad Blood, right? You had no choice? Yeah, I came that, came up with that title early on. That was actually the title of the yeah. book proposal. Yeah, yeah. So was there any other blood things? There will be. There I, wasn't. I didn't really think of any. I mean, that was the one that was screaming at me from right. the beginning. Yeah, absolutely. It's the perfect one. And it, it's a great tale. And I read all your stuff in the journal. And I want to talk about, like, how you did this. Um, so let's begin by talking about your, your background really briefly. So I like to know, people like to know who where people come from. Um, give me sort of a, the quick John. Sure. I, I started out in journalism in the mid-90s working for the uh, sister wire service of the Wall Street Journal, which is called Dow Jones Newswires. Mm-hmm. And then I joined the journal in its Brussels bureau uh, back in 1999, and I've been at the journal ever since. I've been in uh, based in Brussels, Paris, and New York for the past uh, 12 or so years. And was healthcare all your, your area for the whole time? No, I don't think Healthcare oh. became my specialty when I moved back to New York, and I, I came back and joined the Health and Science Bureau and, and covered the pharmaceutical industry for a year or two, and then joined the investigative team and kind of carried that expertise over to and my— why, hel- why that area? It's what appealed to me the most— uh, Coming back from Europe as a foreign correspondent, I knew mm-hmm. I'd have to specialize. When you're abroad, you know, you get to kind of cover yeah. everything. Uh, and when you're back in, in the States, you you obviously have an, a narrower sort of uh, a slice of real estate that you're given. And so I wanted that slice to be uh, interesting and, and uh, uh, really uh, engaging to me. And healthcare was that. And the journal, as you know, had a fantastic um, sort of history of uh, great uh, investigative and explanatory reporting uh, in in medicine and science. And and so I was interested for that reason. So talk about getting, so you did that for many years. How did you get onto this story? Because one of the things I was talking about earlier is uh, it was astonishing. There was a series of stories by tech reporters about Theranos. And I was saying we never wrote about it because we thought it was a healthcare startup and we didn't have expert. We just didn't have someone who could really do a good job at it. That's not an excuse. It just wasn't a tech company to us. Um, but no healthcare reporters looked at it very carefully either. So it was sort of betwixt and between as a company. So talk about what attracted you to it. Explain what Theranos is for those who don't no, they should right. know. Of course, it's well known. Silicon. Disaster. It's a Theranos is a Silicon Valley startup that was uh, launched by Elizabeth Holmes when she graduated. When she actually dropped out of Stanford when she was 19 years old in in 2003, and uh, her vision was to uh, build a, a portable blood testing device that would run the full range of lab tests from mm-hmm. just a. a a drop or two of blood uh, pricked from the finger. That that was the original conceit of Theranos. Right, which is the great dream of many people. Who, I have I have a blood issue, and so I get blood tests a lot, and it's always dragging a lot of blood out of you. And so it's it would be the great dream of anybody. Right, and this. and this is something and do- money and stuff like saving money. Right, and it's something that researchers have been working on for twenty years now, uh, both in industry and universities, and it's. Uh, and a nut that hasn't really been cracked. I mean, people have been able to come up with tests that, that can do, you know, three or four off a drop of blood, but not 50 and much less hundreds. These panels, they're called right. panels, these, right? These huge panels. I mean, she was saying that pretty much every every test uh, that they did in big labs, in big uh, uh, reference laboratories that she could do with her technology off just a drop or two of blood. And talk about how she, she got that there. Because it was, you know, you're saying it's a startup in Silicon Valley, but it just happens to be a startup that is in Silicon Valley, not that is a Silicon Valley startup. And I know that's, you know, parsing words, but she, she attracted a... Um, a patina around her that it was a tech right. company. I mean, she she very much positioned Theranos as a tech company, mm-hmm. even though, as I argue in the uh, epilogue of the book, it was actually more, first and foremost, uh, a, a healthcare company and a medical right. company. But she very much— Medical uh, device company. Medical device. Of which medi- there are many more in Silicon Valley. We'll get into right. that later. Med- medical technology company. and she, But she very much wanted uh, to drape herself in the mystique of Silicon Valley, which, you know— most people would understand as uh, what came out of the chip 
industry and what mm-hmm. came out of the computer industry and what is now, you know, or the internet industry. The, the internet industry now. Um, and so she uh, headquartered her company at first in East Palo Alto or Menlo Park on the edge of East Palo Alto and then in Palo Alto proper, just, you know, across the street essentially from the Stanford campus. Mm-hmm. And that was part of uh, her uh, desire to really channel uh, the image and the trappings of Silicon Valley and, mm-hmm. and make Theranos in the public eye a tech company when, in fact, it was a, a medical Yeah, that company. was interesting. And also located across from Stanford, uh, the hospital, you know, the medical school, um, right. which has got enormous reputation. Mm-hmm. Um, so talk about how she did this. Like, how did—and then I want to understand how, why you got—how you got to her. Right. Well, when she first dropped out, she had actually had um, this vision for uh, what she called the Therapatch, which was like an armband. They would have microneedles, and the microneedles would draw your blood— and uh, diagnose whatever ailed you and, and almost simultaneously— Do microneedles exist? At, at the no. time, I mean, they, microfluidics were a couple years old mm-hmm. at that point. There was a Swiss uh, scientist who had uh, figured out that you could repurpose the microfabrication techniques used mm-hmm. uh, to make computer chips and, and use them to make tiny channels that would move uh, tiny quantities of liquid. Mm-hmm. And so that, that was sort of like uh, when—, when uh, It certainly thing, sounds good, right? Yeah, Things in that space were certainly uh, hot, and there was a lot of research going on. And so she sort of surfed on that, and uh, she quickly abandoned the Therapatch, the armband, because that was really too futuristic. That was basically science fiction. Yeah, I'd like an invisibility cloak, John, but (laughs) it's not happening today. So the first pivot was to something that seemed a little bit more feasible, which was a— a toaster-sized microfluidic device in which you would slot a cartridge, and the cartridge would have your drop of blood. And uh, and so for a couple of years, they actually tried to work on a microfluidic uh, device, and they couldn't get anywhere with it. Mm-hmm. Um, that, and her that, background was not medical, correct? Well, I mean, her what was her her background right. was that she had dropped out of college after barely a year and yeah. a half of undergraduate studies. So right. I don't I don't think you could say that yeah. she had any expertise no. whatsoever. That's, I'm making that point. Right, right. I'm making that salient point. Yep. So after a couple of years of trying the microfluidics, they they abandoned it and they pivoted to what was essentially a converted glue dispensing robot. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the engineers at Theranos ordered a glue dispensing robot from a company in New Jersey called Fisnar mm-hmm. and then reprogrammed it, put a, a pet at the end of the robotic arm and programmed the robotic arm to sort of mimic the steps that a lab scientist would do on the bench to, to test blood. So it would be a robot blood tester. Right. And it was it was pretty rudimentary. I mean, this, yeah, this no, robotic— None of these are bad ideas, but go ahead. Yeah, but I mean, that yeah, was a big step, no, huge down. step down from yeah, microfluidics. My, and, right. Anyways, she she had this black and white case uh, custom designed by Yves Beard, the Swiss yes, industrial designer. <laughs> and it looked, you don't have to say it like you can say Yves Beard, <laughs> but I like the way you said it. Well, I'm I'm half French. I grew up in Paris, so I he tend has to a fan, he's fantastic as he sounds. But go ahead. And, and Eve made this black and this sleek black and white case with a diagonal cut that which is his thing, right? That hid the. Uh, the robotic arm and the, but it didn't, it couldn't hide the the loud grinding noises that the the arm and the pet made, but that was essentially the first device, and it was or the rather the second uh, device, and it was called the Edison. She called it Edison after, of course, Thomas yes, Edison. Yeah. Yeah. And then the third iteration of the technology, which they started working on in late 2010, is what she now calls the Mini Lab. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was the, the Edison could only do one class of test known as mm-hmm. immunoassays, which are tests that use uh, antibodies to create chemical reactions. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the the mini lab was supposed to do more than just immunoassays. It was supposed to do uh, general chemistry assays and and uh, blood cell counts, et cetera. And so it needed to include in a small space many more lab instruments. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it ended up being it ended up being taller and deeper and uh, weighing a lot more, and we can get into this, uh, but uh, essentially, by the time she went live with the blood tests in mm-hmm. Walgreens stores in the fall of 2013, the mini lab, the last iteration of the device, was a totally malfunctioning prototype, and right. so she dusted off the Edison, mm-hmm. which could only do a few immunoassays, and, and for the rest of the 200-plus tests that they advertised on the menu, they used commercial analyzers. Which is meaning they sent it to... 
the, te- the lab. No, what they actually did is they bought Siemens machines mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and um, they uh, hacked the Siemens machines to adapt them to small uh, finger stick blood samples. Right. And the two things they did, the main two things they did was they uh, created these uh, cups to go into the Siemens machines that were half the size of the regular Siemens cups. Of and, blood. Of blood, yeah. And then they diluted the blood. So those two moves dealt with a problem called dead volume mm-hmm. and essentially making the cups smaller made the, the, the needle that went in the blood and aspirated the blood uh, closer to the bottom and diluting the blood created more volume. Uh-huh. But this came with um, problems, uh, problems w- which is that the tests become less accurate because you're pre-diluting the blood before you put it in the Siemens machine and it gets diluted again right. as part of the Siemens machine's testing protocol. So you're tampering with the device more than you should be. Right, in it, order to get the results. Right, and you're also diluting the uh, concentration of the analytes. You're trying to measure uh, to, to levels that are beneath the range that the FDA has approved for the machine. Sure. So obviously the big question is, oh, what a lot of fraud. Why? Right, well... Um, as I explained in the book, she approached uh, Walgreens and Safeway in early 2010, mm-hmm. claiming that she— Seven years after she started. Right. Right. Claiming she had a device that could do all these tests off right. a, a, How many total did she, did she say she could she do? She said um, around 200 okay. at, at the time, early Which 2010. Which is like fantastic. If anyone's seen a panel thing when you have a blood right. test, there's like— it looks like there's about 200 on those Right. The, prob- the problem is that was a lie. That was yeah, a big lie. Of course, yeah. The Edison could only do, even if you assume that the Edison could do many immunoassays, the Edison could have theoretically maybe done 50 immunoassays. The reality is that none of those immunoassays had been validated. But the Edison could certainly not do these other classes of tests, which right. she was representing to, to these retail partners. Give me an idea of do. what tests. Give, give, give like a regular – like I, again, I know about this because I get my blood drawn a lot, and it's a lot yeah. of blood. It's so constant, so uh, an example of an immunoassay would be a vitamin D test mm-hmm. or a PSA test, right. which is the, the prostate cancer test essentially. Um, uh, but then if you're measuring cholesterol, that's a general right. chemistry test. Which is a common one. Which is a common one, right? And um, thyroid elect- electrolytes. No, thyroid. Uh, a lot of those are, are immunoassays. But if you're yeah. if you're looking at very common tests like uh, cholesterol or electrolytes, mm-hmm. uh, potassium, etc., those are all general chemistry tests, and those mm-hmm. are tests that the Edison machine could not do. And to what end do you do these tests? I, I'm sorry to make you dumb it down, but for people, it's to, in order to find out various diseases and issues because blood, of course, has so much information right. about There's it. There's a lot of information. So um, uh, some of these uh, various tests, I mean, would, would allow you to uh, gauge whether your organs are functioning properly mm-hmm. and are healthy, like your liver. Yeah. Um, cholesterol, of course, has to do with, you know, whether you're in danger of uh, mm-hmm. having heart disease. Um and the bottom line is that these are uh, among the most prescribed tests. If you get right. uh, a, an order from a your doctor, from your general practitioner, he, even he's very likely to have you um, to, tested for these what are called general chemistry assays, which mm-hmm. the Edison machine could not do. Could not. So she went to these two companies in early 2010 asserting that her technology could do things it couldn't do, and she actually only started working on the next iteration of the technology at the end of that year. Mm-hmm. And by the time she went live two or three years later, the, the latest iter- iteration of the technology was a, a prototype that didn't work. Yeah, so she went to Safeway and uh, Walgreens, right? Walgreens. That's right. Which are eager to be getting into this space. I mean, let's, like, set the business. Right. A lot of these companies um, in retail are trying to compete in lots of different ways, and one of them is to create these mini clinics. And right. you know, they, there's all kinds of activity around that. Um, and in its order to draw people in and to cut costs, there's a whole lot of this also going on in Silicon Valley with Forward and One Medical and everything else, like this idea of simplifying the medical, common medical procedures, essentially. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't just about uh, bringing in more foot traffic, but they also hope to share in the extra revenues and profits uh, from the Theranos blood tests. So uh, Safeway, for instance, uh, went and spent $350 million to create these beautiful clinics within its supermarkets and mm-hmm. about half of its stores. So you're talking eight or 900 stores right. around the country where they did these renovations. And uh, Safeway's then president, Steve Bird, thought it would easily pay for itself, that the investment would easily pay for itself because their aggressive assumption was that they would create $200 million in new revenue and per blood year. Tests, blood tests or whatever. They, they do other things, obviously. They do vaccines and things like that. But. Yeah. 
but but so those revenues never materialized in the 350 million that Safeway invested in renovating its stores just went down the drain. Yeah, yeah. Were they called? And then if Walgreens bought many clinics. I can't remember all the different permutations of these, but pretty much all of them got into it. And it may, it's a natural adjacent business for a Walgreens or a, or a CVS or something it, like that. It makes sense if the yeah. if the product you know is validated mm-hmm. and um, uh, you know respects regulations. I think it does make sense. So why wasn't it validated by those two? I'm going to get to the VCs later and the rich people of Silicon Valley. But why was it? These are two companies that they're relying on this as a as an object when they buy a blood pressure cuff that right. they have there in the Safeway. It, it's assuming that you get the right blood pressure from it. I mean, usually right. those are just toys, I think, in those stores. But talk the, the, a little bit about that, why they didn't. Yeah, this is one of the parts of the story that's really uh, almost incomprehensible is Walgreens in particular's lack of due diligence and, mm-hmm. and lack of verification. Uh, Theranos, again and again, over the course of three or four years, was able to keep Walgreens at arm's length. And uh, at, at one point, as I describe in, in uh, one chapter of the book, Walgreens hired full-time a lab consultant mm-hmm. named Kevin Hunter, and um, his role was going to be to to help Walgreens vet the technology. And And Elizabeth and, and her boyfriend, who's number two of the company, Sonny, uh, managed to get Kevin Hunter after a while excluded from their weekly video calls and from their in-person meetings because he was asking too many questions that they mm-hmm. weren't happy with. And how did she with. do that? How did they do that? And how, why did Walgreens accept this? Well, Walgreens, um, as my sources explained to me uh, in the course of reporting the book, Walgreens was terrified that the Theranos technology would end up in the hands of a rival, and in particular mm-hmm. in the hands of CVS, its mm-hmm. larger rival based mm-hmm. in Rhode Island. So there was this fear of missing out mm-hmm. uh, that explains a lot of uh, Walgreens's sort of credulity and lack of due diligence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I could sort of expect it from a Safeway, but from a Walgreens whose business it is— Right. Um, it's, it's the dynamic on the Safeway side was that Elizabeth uh, um, uh, had this relationship, this close relationship with Steve Bird, who was the CEO, and and basically she only talked to him. Mm-hmm. And so they had a war, war room in uh, Pleasanton, uh, California, uh, and uh, which is Safeway's yes. uh, headquarters location, and they would discuss the— uh, Theranos partnership once a week, and Steve Bird would always participate either in person or by phone. And whenever issues came up and Safeway executives wanted to ask uh, Theranos questions, Steve Bird would say, I'll take care of it. I'll take this to Elizabeth. Right. And and that continued until uh, Steve Bird finally stepped down from uh, uh, the CEO-ship of uh, Safeway midway through 2013. Which is interesting because when a CEO intervenes, nobody speaks up. I'm going to see you. It intervenes in those personal relationships. Right. And by the middle of 2013, when, when uh, he finally stepped down, there, there were, were a lot of uh, qualms among Safeway uh, executives. And, and there were a lot of people uh, who were uh, frustrated and, and angry with Steve Bird for um, essentially giving Elizabeth Holmes this cover. At that point, uh, you know, she had been dangling before them this partnership for three years, and it was still not happening, although she did uh, get the, the Theranos blood test used in the uh, campus clinic in Pleasanton mm-hmm. at Safeway. But, but deployed to any of the stores? It was never deployed Thank to goodness. any Safeway stores. Right. And, and I think that has to do with the fact that Bird finally stepped down in mid-2013, and then uh, Elizabeth refused to speak to anyone at Safeway. So then Safeway executives, after uh, Bird left, had to deal with Sonny. Uh, her boyfriend, who was the number two of the company, or with her younger brother mm-hmm. and his fraternity friends, and um, and from there the relationship kind of gradually fell apart. And did they and they paid Theranos for this or not? They uh, lent Theranos thirty million dollars on top of the three hundred fifty million dollars they, they invested in in redoing their stores. Right, right. On top of that, and then Theranos already had its own money too. What, why play those games with these companies if they're not going to deploy them? Well, I mean, this is essentially part of the fraud. Yeah. What what happened is by uh, late 2013, uh, Theranos was running low on money, ne- needed to raise new money, and was planning for a big uh, fundraising round. And so it uh, went live in Walgreens stores in September of 2013. How many? 
at first it was just one in Palo Alto yeah. and then it was I a second that. one and then it grew to about 40 or 45 in the Phoenix area. Mm-hmm. And then it could suddenly go to prospective investors and say, see? See, it's working. It's in the it's field. It's working. We're, we're, we're live. We're commercial. It's not even right. that we're promising you that we're going to be commercial soon. We've already done it. Yeah. And a lot of investors were, were sold by that, which mm-hmm. was that, you know, you could already go to Walgreens stores and get right. get the service, get right. the product. Right, absolutely. And when you think about how that was, it was all, it's not, a, it's not the Ponzi scheme of it. It's something else. It's that it's, it's a very Silicon Valley thing is if that guy's in, then that guy's in, then that guy's in. Like that, that's how you judge things. And what was interesting, and we're going to get to when we get back, is how many Silicon Valley, mostly guys, were in. And it caused everyone else to get in. If that, if a smart guy like Larry Olson was in this, um, it'd have to be a sure thing kind of thing. Right. Although I would say in, in uh, Ellison's defense and even in Draper's defense, mm-hmm. although he's been attacking me, mm-hmm. um, I no, would say— he does that to everybody. I would say in their defense that they came in early. Yeah. Uh, Draper gave her her first million dollars, and Larry Ellison came in the second round uh, in early 2006. And so Ellison invested when, you know, it really was— a, An interesting a, idea. I it was an interesting it. idea. I could and, see him being very interested. And, and, you know, he decided to make a bet on it the way uh, people in the Valley make bets on right. uh, dropouts who have an unproven concept. Absolutely. And some of them, they know some of them are going to work out. Many yeah. of them are not. Yeah. Most of them are not. And so I wouldn't say that that Draper and Ellison were defrauded the way l- later investors were exactly. defrauded. All right. When we get back, we're going to talk about that because the making of this into a tech company is really an interesting part of this. And I think it was a part of the way that pushed it forward in a lot of ways. We're here with John Kerry Rue. He's the author of Bad Blood, Secrets and Lies in Silicon Valley. We'll be back in a minute after we take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Today's show is brought to you by Away Travel. They ask thousands of people how they pack, why they travel, and what bugs them most about their luggage. Then they made an affordable, high-quality suitcase that solves those problems. Choose from a variety of colors and four sizes, including two carry-on sizes. Each suitcase is made with premium German polycarbonate that's unrivaled in strength and impact resistance, but also lightweight. There's a TSA-approved combination lock built into the top of the bag. And inside each one, there's a removable washable laundry bag that keeps dirty clothes separate from clean. And here's the really cool part. I am always on my phone, and if it dies when I'm Twittering, when I'm traveling, which is always, then it is a huge hassle for all my giant fans on that medium. But both sizes of the Away carry-on can charge cell phones, tablets, e-readers, or anything else that's powered by a USB cord. A single charge of the carry-on can charge my iPhone five times, so it's convenient and highly annoying to the Twittersphere. Get $20 off this amazing suitcase, which I use also, and my son uses it. Go to awaytravel.com slash decode and use the promo code decode during checkout. There's a 100-day trial period, and shipping is free to the lower 48 states. What do we call it that? That's an interesting way to discuss the United States of America. One more time, that's awaytravel.com slash decode and use the promo code decode during checkout. I'd also like to tell you about one of our other podcasts, Recode Media with Peter Kafka. Peter, who'd you talk to this week? Hey, Kara. Guess who I talked to? I talked to Lior Cohen, music impresario, hip-hop legend, music label bigwig, guy who's in a viral photo with Kanye West, head of global music at YouTube, who's launching a new YouTube music service. We talked all about that. Many other things. Lior had some... uh, constructive criticism for me as well. You'll enjoy listening. Sounds great, Peter. You can find Recode Media on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We're back with John Carreyrou, the author of Bad Blood, Secrets and Lies in a Silicon Valley Startup. It's about Theranos, obviously, blood, Elizabeth Holmes, and more. So talk about the Silicon Valley part of this. Um, Located in Palo Alto, I saw her a lot around Silicon Valley. And as I told John, uh, she was putting it off as a tech company. We, we didn't cover it, Rico, but it was very much covered by tech reporters, more than healthcare reporters, which I found really interesting at the time. Um, and she had quite a presence. She had quite a, a, right. a, a, she's a striking person, interesting. She's one of the few women CEOs. She had a lot of affects like the turtleneck and the dramatic uh, profile pictures and things like that. And it, right. was, it was an unusual situation. And I think people try to, put more women on covers and things like that. So talk about that, like how, why she portrayed it that way. Right. So her idol was Steve Jobs. Yes, I indeed. mean, she was absolutely obsessed with Steve Jobs and with Apple. Um, 
And uh, early on, in as early as 2005, 2006, when, when uh, they were still working on the microfluidic uh, mm-hmm. version of the technology, she would call it the iPod of healthcare. Okay. Um, so it was really conflating uh, what she was doing, which was she was trying to do a medical product with the tech industry and with Steve Jobs. And Steve Jobs is the computer industry. It's the but it's very, That's a very persuasive thing because it's instant to think about. You know, it not, doesn't dumb it down. It actually is a great market. It's like it gives you a good visual of what she's doing. Right. But it's the wrong role model if you're trying to create a a medical product. I mean, as you know, in the San Francisco Bay Area, there's this other uh, part, you could call it the valley, Mm -hmm. uh, which is uh, South San Francisco, which has all the, you know, the biotech cluster. They do, yeah. And there's real science going on in uh, South San Francisco and Mm -hmm. in some of the towns. Yeah, to the north and to the south. And there's a lot of medical diagnostics as well. Genentech, others, there's so many. Right. So she could have chosen to, to, you know, any one of those uh, companies or uh, founders or CEOs as a role model, but she chose a a founder who had um, uh, done his pioneering work in the computer industry, Mm -hmm. not in medicine. And I, I think that was an enormous flaw uh, from the beginning. Why was that? Why did she that? I mean, I, I could make the joke, I knew Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs was not my friend, but <laughs> she was no Steve Jobs. Why did she do that? I think she was, um, she, she was just taken in by the razzle-dazzle of, mm-hmm. uh, the, uh, of the computer industry and of the internet uh, industry. And, and also, uh, she was, um, I think, taken with the money. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, the valuations that some of these companies could reach. Facebook, uh, Mark Zuckerberg was coming up uh, around the same time that yep. she was, and I think she was very aware uh, of his rise, mm-hmm. and, and I think she wanted to, to replicate it. And also the money, the money. I mean, one of the jokes is there's not enough rat holes to shove it all down, you know, and there's a lot of rat holes. So so what did she do? Talk about this, because I think the inve- there's two things. There's prominent investors like George Schultz um, and several others. You could talk about them. And then the tech investors who were Larry Ellison— uh, right. Tim Draper and others. And and again, those investors, Ellison, Draper, um, came in early. Uh, I would not say that they were defrauded. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the investors who came later, and, and especially those who came in 2013 and after, because uh, when you look at Theranos, the bulk of the money, altogether she raised about $900 million. Right. And about $650 million of that was raised after 2013. Um, and that's when she used the, the fact that they had gone live in, in Walgreens stores as sort of um, the validation. That, and who that was Theranos. the biggest investor in that? So the, the biggest as a family uh, were the Waltons, mm-hmm. uh, the, the uh, heirs of Sam uh, Walton, who, who founded Walmart. They put in $150 million through two uh, companies. The, the biggest single investor was actually Rupert Murdoch, who put in $125 million yeah, in early 2015. Um, Personal money. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, Betsy DeVos, the uh, education secretary, her yeah. family put in $100 million. The Coxes— Yeah, they're trying to make it back now. <laughs> Sorry, you don't have to say anything. <laughs> the Coxes um, uh, of Atlanta, mm-hmm. um, Cox Enterprises, put in another $100 million. Uh, Carlos Slim, the Mexican billionaire, put in $30 million. Uh, the Oppenheimer dynasty of mm-hmm. South Africa used to cont- control the, the De Beers Diamond Company. They put in, I believe, uh, $20 or $25 million. Um, a Greek, Greek shipping heir put in another $20 or $25 million. Uh, One of his heirs did. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, what you'll notice among this this Rich later people. group of investors, none of them are uh, VCs with any experience right. in healthcare or medical technology. I was thinking dumb rich people, but go ahead. <laughs> right. I mean, these were these were essentially family, family offices, offices, very yeah. very rich families, uh, billionaire families that uh, were not sophisticated investors. And mm. uh, you know, I, I I happen to know that uh, some sophisticated investors like. Um, Sequoia actually knocked on the door of Theranos around the 2013-2014 uh, period because, um, you know, they'd caught sight of uh, – Elizabeth started to see that, yeah. she, that her profile was rising and they were just curious. And uh, and she said uh, she wasn't even interested in talking to them because right. she, she didn't need the money because she was getting plenty of uh, mm-hmm. money from – investors who were not sophisticated right. and who would not ask uh, the tough questions that she didn't want to respond would have, to. Certainly would have. So so, so the original Silicon Valley ones, Larry Ellison, Draper, Fisher-Jervidson, who else in there? 
among the there there was another um, uh, Silicon Valley firm called ATA Ventures, mm-hmm. uh, which I believe uh, yes. makes a specialty of investing at a very early stage. Yeah, and they accompanied Theranos through several rounds. Um, uh, but again, they invested very early it's just on. Just on a way. There's a lot of those happening. Right. And especially in, in medical areas, there's a ton of them now. Cardia, there's Color, there's 23andMe. And they're, they're all looked at like that, I would say. Like, okay, this is interesting. Some of it's very promising. Let's right. go in. Let's go into this. Right. Um, talk about their other advisors. She She created a whole... Stable of the, the board. I mean, board. her her main the main way that she uh, got away with what she got away with is that she surrounded herself with larger than life figures. Mm-hmm. So, you know, she early on she met uh, Don Lucas, Donald L. Lucas, mm-hmm. uh, who was a very well known venture capitalist and who groomed Larry Ellison and helped him take uh, Oracle public in the mid eighties, and he became chair of her board, I believe, in two thousand six after he invested. Um, and she and and really Lucas in the early years uh, gave her credibility cover um, and then and then Lucas uh, unfortunately got Alzheimer's disease and mm-hmm. so she turned in 2011 to George Schultz whom she met uh, through someone at Stanford and she she managed to wow George Schultz who's um, who I happen to know through my reporting is is passionate about science. Mm-hmm. And um, and pretty soon, you know, they were meeting on a weekly basis and he was joining the board. And then she used her uh, budding relationship with Schultz to meet all these other uh, very, you know, famous uh, ex-statesmen and military commanders who mm-hmm. were all uh, senior fellows at the Hoover Institution. Let's um, be that clear. It's a Stanford institution. It's conservative, actually. It's a, con- it's a more conservative bent on this campus of Stanford. And right. They, it's they, a think tank that has its uh, building squarely in the middle of the Stanford campus. And uh, among the other senior fellows there were people like Kissinger uh, and um, Sam Nunn mm-hmm. uh, and uh, uh, Admiral Roughhead, um, Perry, the, the former Secretary of Defense. Yeah, it's quite Clinton, a place. William I had Perry. lunch yeah. there recently and I felt like I was going to get old white men poisoning but that was just me um so it's really it's a real it's a real place it's so, really so one after the other she recruited these guys yeah. you know who by the way were all in their 70s 80s yeah and, they and wanted 90s, relevance they wanted and and who didn't have any experience right. uh, to speak of except bill frist uh, was once upon this a time a surgeon yeah uh, he was arguably one of the only two on the theranos board uh, who had anything to do with healthcare, and she promised them stock mm-hmm. uh, in exchange for for joining her board. And they wanted to get in on the Silicon Valley thing too. I think so. Yeah. Yeah, they couldn't get into Facebook, but hey, we're still relevant. We're going to play. It's hard. It's very heady when you're there and you're not part of it. And you definitely like right now with with Bitcoin and crypto, like everyone. I, I literally have billionaires being like, "I got to get some," and I'm like, "Okay." Like, don't you feel like you have? It's fascinating to watch the. The FOMA mentality of right. everybody there. If you're on, not onto the thing, and I can't imagine what it was like not to be well, part Kiss- of the internet revolution. Yeah, Kissinger thought um, he was gonna, uh, you know, he he had the shares in a trust for his children, mm-hmm. and uh, he told people that I am going uh, to have someday be rich. Right, he was. <laughs> should have bought Bitcoin. His and- heirs were going to get really rich through <laughs> Theranos. Um, so undoubtedly, there was, uh, you know, this quid pro quo going on. They, they thought they were going to get rich, and she used them for their reputations. I mean, these guys had sterling, all of them, sterling reputations. She also had Mattis, mm-hmm. who had just— uh, General Mattis. Uh, General Mattis, Mad who's Dog. now our, our Secretary of Defense and, and who— um, uh, had just stepped down uh, from CENTCOM at the time. And he, he was another uh, great get for the board. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the investors that put in $100 million was this hedge fund uh, partner fund management based mm-hmm. in San Francisco. And when their guys went to, to Theranos and they saw the board, uh, I mean, that, that was almost enough yeah. to, to sell it. How, how could anything go wrong at a company with such a sterling board with, by the way, a lawyer who sat in on all the board meetings whose name was David Boyce? Right. To add to it, like just right. <laughs> let's mean, bring him in. How, like, could, how could anything go wrong? Oh man, it did. Uh, so talk to me. One of the things. Let me talk about how you got him interested. One of the. I do want you to talk about George Schultz's grandson because I think that was your finest story. Like getting that turnabout was 
epic in, in so many ways, and and I hope it's part of the movie because that to me was the most astonishing uh, moment in your. I was like, there's a, there's a time when you read a story and you go, holy Jesus, um, on and you don't get many holy Jesuses in your life with a story. Uh, just recently, the Ronan Farrow one on Elliot. Uh, I mean, um, Eric Schneiderman. There was a holy Jesus moment, but that one was that for me. Um, so talk a little bit about how you got in. Why did you suddenly go, eh, this is funny? Well, I read um, The New Yorker published a story in mid-December 2014, and it was another one of these profiles of Elizabeth, yep. mostly uh, fawning. Yep. And I read it on the subway home, uh, and I thought there were a couple of things that were strange in there, um, including a quote she gave about how her technology worked, uh, which sounded more like a high school student than a sophisticated laboratory scientist. And also the fact that, um, you know, nothing that she had supposedly discovered had undergone peer review. Right. Um, but to be to be fair and, and honest, I would probably not have done anything if it weren't for the fact that three or four weeks later, I was approached by um, a tipster, uh, a source of mine who had helped me with a uh, an uh, uh, investigative project I'd done the year before, and he was a practicing pathologist mm-hmm. uh, in uh, Columbia, Missouri. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he uh, wrote this uh, relatively obscure blog, and he had just written a, a short skeptical item on his blog after reading the New Yorker story in which he uh, expressed skepticism. This is bullshit. Right. I mean, he said it more politely and mm-hmm. elegantly than that, but yeah, he was skeptical. And after he wrote that, uh, he was contacted uh, by uh, this group of people who had been these uh, quiet skeptics um, and had some information uh, indirectly. And uh, and so then he, he got in touch with me. And uh, one of those people uh, had recently been in touch with a, a Theranos employee who had just left. Mm-hmm. Those um, are the best. So when, he got in, when the pathologist in Missouri got in touch with me, uh, I had to pull on the string and, and you know, it, it was essentially a third-hand tip and mm-hmm. I had to get to the uh, employee. employee because yep. everything else was sort of conjecture and That's the key and, part. And I try to do exit interviews on everyone who leaves companies and so that's how I got a lot of scoops because you do. Right, you right. Do. No, I mean, and uh, so that was the key is getting mm-hmm. to that uh, that former employee who and just employee left. And had information you wanted. Well, yes, obviously. and he, well, first of all, he was scared to death so it took me mm-hmm. a while to get him comfortable and, and I promised him confidentiality. Uh, and he finally opened up to me, and um, and then it turns out that because of the position that he was in, uh, he he was a high-ranking uh, employee at the company, directing. He was essentially director of the lab, um, and for that reason, he had tons of information. And he was an unimpeachable source, mm-hmm. but he was an anonymous source, and so right. I, I wasn't going to be able to to do the story with just one source. And so from there, it became a game of corroboration. I tried to get uh, what he was telling me corroborated by other ex-employees. If I could boil down your reporting, this sure. doesn't work. This is yes. this doesn't work. I mean, it, it it was. He told me that you know they have this one machine called the Edison, and it doesn't work, and it's mm-hmm. only doing this handful of tests. And then they've hacked the, these commercial machines made by Siemens, and they're doing most of the Bad other tests. tests with those mm-hmm. and those are problematic as well and then they've got this other machine they're working on in the background that he knew as the 4S it was the uh, Steve Jobs inspired code name because mm-hmm. when they had started working on the mini lab and I think it was 2011 when the iPhone 4S had come out so oh. she had code named it the 4S that's that's how yeah. obsessed she was no, with I Jobs. Read that. that was a holy deal right so he knew the mini lab as the 4S, and all he knew about it is that he knew that the people, his colleagues who had been working on it, told him it, it was a box that didn't work. Mm-hmm. And what they were working in the lab was the previous iteration of the technology, the Edison, and that that was limited and it didn't work either. And then the hacked Siemens machines, the the results from those were problematic. And and uh, yeah, from that point on, I knew this was potentially a big story, right? Because it meant that not only had she raised uh, a billion dollars, right, and and potentially defrauded investors, but she was potentially putting patients in harm's way. Right. Well, that was the key part of it. I mean, as you said in this thing, you used the term in your piece, vaporware. You know, the term vaporware was coined in the early 1980s to describe new computer software hardware that was announced with great fan for only to take years to materialize if it did at all. Who cares, right? Who cares if you don't get another photo app or whatever? Right. You might be disappointed, but yeah, you're not going to, your health isn't going to be, <laughs> yeah, so you, you might not even remember that the yeah. promise was made two years before. Um, or something, you know, there's a lot, like there's a lot of companies, like there was General Magic, which 
eventually led to the iPhone. It really did. You can there's a great new movie out about it. So some things just don't work. Like, but they're great ideas and they're conceptually right. But it, the, either the timing because the technology is not there, or the mobility is not there, or the network is not there. But the conceptual ideas are great. Um, but this was different. This was this was because it was people's lives at stake. Right, and it's an enormous difference. Um, I think she had to have been aware that going live with blood tests uh, that she hadn't validated, uh, that, that were, were not really reproducible according to the company's own data, she had to know that they were putting patients in harm's way. And, mm-hmm. and that's just uh, beyond the pale and just yeah. hard to get your mind around. Yeah, we're going to get to why she did that next. But just tell the story of the George Schultz's because the, the, the grandson was working there. Like this right. is another thing. They put their various and sundry relatives in some of these companies. It happens all the time in Silicon Valley. Right. So George Schultz, who, who was once uh, Secretary of State for Reagan, before that uh, had held two cabinet positions Big under the Nixon administrations. And uh, is, remains a revered uh, figure in, in uh, Republican circles, lives out there. His house is like uh, essentially a block or two away from Stanford. Mm-hmm. And his grandson, Tyler Schultz, uh, was graduating from Stanford in uh, uh, May of 2013 and then went to work for the company the following fall. And uh, after a few months, uh, started realizing that he was uncomfortable with a lot of the practices there. Right. Um, and he was tried, a biology major? Or he was a biology major, major yeah. yep. And uh, he tried to raise his concerns with Elizabeth and uh, eventually was forced uh, to leave the company on, on uh, not good terms mm-hmm. after eight months. Because um, he was tri- saying this doesn't work. Right. He tried to um, a kid. get his grandfather's attention, tried to explain to him what he had seen and that he wasn't the only one who mm-hmm. had these qualms. Um, and uh, his grandfather wouldn't listen to him, so he ended up leaving the the company and was quiet for about a year Mm -hmm. until I started poking around after I made contact with the the ex-laboratory director. And Tyler heard uh, that I was poking around through the grapevine and and looked up my profile on LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. And you know how on LinkedIn you see when people look up your profile. And so I saw that he looked me up and and my first source had mentioned his name and I Mm -hmm. had already written him down as another potential source in my notebook. So I immediately uh, wrote him uh, an in-mail message mm-hmm. via LinkedIn. Thank and you, I, Jeff Weiner. But go ahead. <laughs> and I didn't hear back from him for about a month. And then suddenly, you know, I was at, at my desk in the newsroom of the Journal in Midtown Manhattan, and my phone rings in the middle of the day, and it's Tyler. Mm-hmm. And um, he was very concerned uh, and nervous, uh, but he, I could also feel he wanted uh, to speak. Um, he'd right. been carrying this weight. Uh, with him for a year, mm-hmm. and here was a reporter who was finally looking into these issues. And you so talk he, about that weight because it was agonizing. Your interview with him was agonizing, and right. his relationship but, with his grandfather was agonizing. Right. Although the the scariest part only came came later. So I, I actually went uh, a few weeks after uh, Tyler and I made contact on the phone, and he began telling me about what he knew and corroborating what my first source had said. I went to uh, uh, Silicon Valley, and he and I uh, had a beer at a, a beer garden in Mountain View. And then I came back to New York, and uh, the company figured out that Tyler was one of my sources mm-hmm. and um, essentially ambushed him. Uh, Theranos lawyers, actually Boys Schiller lawyers, but they mm-hmm. were acting on behalf of Elizabeth Holmes, ambushed Tyler at his grandfather George's house mm-hmm. one evening. Um, and tried to get him to admit that he was talking to the Wall Street Journal and tried to get him to, to a recant, well, first admit that he was talking to the journal, then recant what he had told the journal, and then name the, the journal's other sources. And this pressure campaign uh, went on unbeknownst to me for months mm-hmm. because at that point, Tyler uh, broke off contact with me. He had mm-hmm. been talking to me uh, with a, via burner phone mm-hmm. um, and uh, through a, a, um, a sort of a, a Yahoo address that he'd made up just for our communications. And so I didn't have his real phone number. I didn't have his real email address. And once Theranos started putting the screws to him, I stopped hearing from him. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know for months what had happened to him. Um, In fact, I only found out about a year later. Mm -hmm. um, Once, you know, my first story had been published and then I did a bunch of follow-up stories and it had blown up into this big scandal. I flew back to uh, Stanford and, and met Tyler and, um, in a classroom in the uh, material science building, uh, he finally told me, 
what had happened. Mm -hmm. And I was stunned. Um, and at that point, he was telling me, even though his lawyers had, had ordered him not to speak to me, mm -hmm. um, so he was telling me off the record, and I, I promised uh, to keep it between us until he gave me uh, the, the permission at some point in the future to write about it, which he eventually did. Um, and then a couple days later, I'm back in New York, and Tyler sends me an email and, and tells back. me that Theranos has contacted his lawyers and that they know that we've met again. So they were following him. So they were following Tyler. And then, they of might course, have been they put the screws to the, his relation with his grandfather, which I thought was the most sad. Right. And so they became estranged. I think uh, they've since uh, been able to repair the, the relationship Still. a little bit. I think uh, George Schultz has finally uh, seen the light. Uh, but this this has been an incredibly uh, an incredible ordeal for mm -hmm. Tyler. Um, it's something that I, I don't wish on any 25-year-old. What's he doing now? He's actually uh, got a startup. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a it's a diagnostics uh, startup, and I, I believe he's in the midst of raising money for it. Right oh, now. good for him! All right. So when we get back, we're going to talk more about sort of this at this where what's going on in healthcare and what happened to Elizabeth Holmes, or what's going to happen to her, really, because there's it's ongoing. Um, we're here with John Kerry Rue. He has a new book out about the Theranos scandal called Bad Blood: Secrets and Lies in a Silicon Valley Startup. And we'll get back. We'll talk more. Today's show is brought to you by TransferWise. Do you ever need to send money internationally? Sure, your bank or PayPal can get your money from A to B, but that transfer will cost you more than it should, a lot more. That's the old way of doing things. Let me tell you about the new, smarter, and cheaper way to send money internationally, TransferWise. TransferWise was founded by two friends, Tavit and Christo, who were frustrated by their bank's bad exchange rates and high fees. They wondered, what if we could bypass the banks entirely? So they built TransferWise. That was seven years ago. Today, more than two million people use TransferWise. People sending money home, businesses paying suppliers, freelancers getting paid, the list goes on. TransferWise's clever new technology gives you a great exchange rate and a low fee. So it'll put some extra money in your pocket for more important things. No one has ever said, it's important that my bank gets some extra money. Test it out for free at transferwise.com slash podcast or download the app. Once again, that's transferwise.com slash podcast. It's the wise way to send money. I'd also like to tell you about my other podcast, Too Embarrassed to Ask. Every week we answer your questions about consumer tech and the week's news and various and sundry things. And this week I talked to Scott Galloway, who is an NYU professor. He's a pundit. He runs all kinds of things. What's your favorite thing we talked about in this week's episode? Besides you going to South Beach with the, with with, the internet with, crew. With Zach and the internet crew? Yeah. You know, I, I think the responsibility that government has to... Um, you know, you were saying go off the script. I, I really do think the world is what we make of it, and there's a huge opportunity to kind of create, you know, the great society that, that we all envision. Which is by regulating these big companies, sir. I wouldn't even say it's regulation, but it's acknowledging that government works and the world is what we make of it, and just, we have the money, we have the, you know, we just lack the will. Oh, all right, then. You can find Too Embarrassed to Ask on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. That's Too Embarrassed to Ask. See you there. We're here with John Kerry Rue. He is a fantastic reporter for the Wall Street Journal. His book, Bad Blood, is about the Theranos scandal. We've been talking about how it unfolded. Um, they came after you, too. You're talking about them coming after George Schultz's grandson, who was on the board, for essentially giving you the truth, telling you the truth. They came after you before you were publishing this. Lots of threats, lots of big-name right, lawyers. Right. The first two months, I would say, they, they gave me the runaround. And then— mm -hmm. um, one day I was in the newsroom and she was on Charlie Rose and it was like uh, oh, the, the latest in a series of uh, media appearances, TV and, and magazines and so forth. And uh, I, it seemed I was the only reporter in America that she wouldn't speak to. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I called uh, her, her PR handler and, and I said, you know, you guys are not going to be able to ignore me forever. You mm -hmm. need to engage with me. And so uh, they finally agreed to set up a meeting. Mm -hmm. But... It wasn't going to be with Elizabeth uh, Holmes, nor was it going to be with Sonny Balwani, her boyfriend, and mm -hmm. number two at the company. It was going to be mostly with lawyers. Mm -hmm. And so at first they said, come to the offices of Boyce Schiller in Manhattan and uh, and we'll talk there. And I said yes, and then I thought the better of it. No. Um, I thought, no, you know, that's no. going to be like marching into the lion's den. And so right. I said, why don't you guys come to me? Mm -hmm. And they did in late June of 2015 and—, and um, I fully expected fireworks, so I had Mike Sikonolfi, mm -hmm. the journal's investigative Perfect. editor, uh, who's great, Porter and, and um, uh, Jay Conti, who's our uh, lawyer uh, who worked with us mm -hmm. on sensitive matters. 
And they came with essentially mostly lawyers. Uh, there were there was David Boys flanked mm-hmm. by two uh, oh, Boys Schiller partners, Heather King, who had just recently left Boys Schiller and become mm-hmm. Theranos's general counsel, um, Peter Fritsch, who uh, co-founded with Glenn Simpson the uh, opposition research for Fusion GPS, mm-hmm. which is, has since become notorious for its role in the Trump dossier, mm-hmm. and uh, and this lone. Theranos executive named Daniel Young. Mm-hmm. So of the, the delegation of six or seven people, oh, there was one person from Theranos. So why did the, all these people protect her? Because like you, you're saying, J- Draper, Timmers attacked you, uh, others for a while were giving you an enormously hard time. Why did all these people protect her? I mean, you'd have to ask David Boyes exactly what was going on. Well, he's got judgment through, issues all up head. and down. <laughs> like, let's um, move on to Harvey Weinstein, but, <laughs> you know. But, you know, I don't know. I, I Part of me thinks that, that David um, believed that she had uh, real technology, and um, he had done patent work for several years uh, in a, a patent case uh, for her, and he had been paid, he and his firm had been paid entirely in shares. Mm-hmm. And so they'd been they paid 322,000 uh, Theranos shares, which I think comes out to about $5 million at the valuation that they were given the shares at, which was $15 a share. And and so that made him the, the legal advocate of Theranos, but it also gave him a, a, a financial interest mm-hmm. in Theranos's, um, you know, future. Uh, it makes him impossibly complicit, really. I think it makes him conflicted, but I think it also—I think None he also believed <laughs> in, in the company. Yeah. So that that meeting we had in late June was surreal. Uh, we went around in circles for five hours because they kept telling us that you know that we had misappropriated trade secrets. Oh yeah, that, that one. We had we That's had stolen face. trade secrets, and we needed to return them. Right. Um, and if they if we uh, oh, God. Uh, you know made any moves to publish them, they would sue us. Right and uh, and besides that, that that a lot of our information was wrong, um, and that our our sources were disgruntled former employees and so on and so forth. It, it was one of the most surreal uh, meetings that I've ever participated in, um, and and you know and from there the the campaign this is sort of what I call uh, Theranos' scorched earth uh, counterattack uh, kind of escalated. Why? I, th- well, I mean, I, I've dealt with Uber, so and they eventually. I mean, that was pretty tough, but this was beyond that. This, right. you know what I mean? I mean, I think they they must have thought that there was a reasonable chance that they could uh, get the the journal to kill the story, but not um, looking into whether she was lying or not. There was none of that. By Boy Schiller? Yeah. I don't know exactly what Boyce Schiller did. All of them. Um, it's like Schultz. Right. All of them. What what was it? What? They, I mean, she was. Let me just say, you, I've met a lot of jerky people. She wasn't. I've met her personally. She's rather pleasant. Like, I don't see her as—she doesn't seem menacing or particularly scary. Like, Travis Kalanick no. feels a little scary when you deal with him, a little bit tough, you know. She she does have this charisma, though. She's, yeah. I mean, I saw her uh, later at—more uh, than a year later at the association— American Association for Annual for um, yeah, she Clinical up. Chemistry's uh, annual meeting. She showed up in, in Philadelphia, and she was at that point the story you know had blown yeah. up, and she was still incredibly I impressive. Saw um, I saw it an event too. I couldn't believe she was there. Right, and w- one of the the uh, sources for the book, an early Theranos employee, used to joke even back then. This is in two thousand six to two thousand eight that she could sell ice cream to Eskimos. Yeah, that she was that great a saleswoman. So I think I mean she her idol was Steve Jobs and she did right. have this reality distortion field and you know maybe you and I wouldn't have fallen for it but right. a lot of people what, did along the way. What was interesting why do you think she did this and tell us what happened what's going to happen to her what has happened and what happens to the company? Why she did this? I mean she she said when she was uh, nine or ten years old when she was asked what she wanted to do when she grew up mm-hmm. you know the, the, pretty much the question everyone is asked at one point or another when you're a child. She, her answer was, I want to be a billionaire. Uh-huh. I mean, she, she had this uh, voracious ambition. She wanted to be an entrepreneur billionaire. She wanted to be the female Steve Jobs. She wanted the fame. She wanted the money. And she would stop at nothing to get it. Um, and, and uh, you know, if there was collateral damage. She should have just joined Facebook, but go ahead. <laughs> like, there's plenty she, of she wanted She wanted she to she be the, the first female billionaire founder. Right. She, she wanted to be that. 
And simply nothing was going to, she was simply nothing, not going to let anything get in the way of that. What is at the heart of that? Like, I think about all these people I deal with all the time. You know what I mean? And, you know, I was joking the other day, someone, I was very difficult with someone. These are comparatively, because I think people's lives were at risk. You know, it was a minor takedown on my part. And they said, um, when are you going to stop? And I was like, when you stay down. Like, stay down. Like, it was, it was sort of interesting why she, one, didn't stay down and two, did it. Right, and so that's some of the, the more interesting, if you're trying to psychoanalyze her. Is I'd like you to. What are you? She, she was found out, essentially, mm-hmm. you know, by me in the journal in late 2015, and she has continued with the charade yeah. of supposedly sure. developing this product and keeping this company alive. We're now two-plus years into this, mm-hmm. and uh, she's a couple months from completely running out of money, and Fortress Investment Group is going to seize the assets and liquidate them. How many them. people are still there? So 125 people were there uh, uh, probably as of last week, but they've been told that they won't – most of them have been told they won't have a job anymore or a paycheck on June 12th. At that point, the company goes down to about 20 employees and then they're – they're yes. going to be there and turning off the lights. The assets? the assets were mainly the patents. One of the things that Theranos was good at was patenting a lot right. of things. And Fortress Processes. saw that. And yeah, uh, Fortress, when it extended its loan, its sort of vulture loan to Theranos last year, uh, used the, the, you know, got the patents as collateral. And so when the, the company is liquidated, the, the main value is the mm-hmm. patents. And it could be something, right? Or not. I, I mean, the I think they're, they're, they're I think the process Fortress is mainly going to going to play patent troll with right those if they come patents. up with a similar yeah. kind of conceptual idea. I, so could it be valuable? I mean, I think eventually there are going to be breakthroughs in diagnostics, including mm-hmm. with small samples, and I just don't think it's going to come out of any work that Theranos has so done. So will she ever be a billionaire, Joe? I think. I mean, she's potentially facing yes, indictments. That was my I mean, point. Yeah. Uh, she and Sonny Balwani, her, her ex boyfriend, the ex number two of the company, are potentially staring down at indictments. Um, if you read the uh, SEC's complaint yeah. from a couple months ago, it's it, the the case for securities fraud. Southern District of New York. Is, or who, no, it's who, the, who U- the, the U.S. Attorney's Chinese. Office in San Francisco is, has been conducting a criminal mm-hmm. investigation. And my sources tell me that it's very much uh, proceeding apace. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it very it looks very likely to result in indictments. So I I think that, you know, she's she's looking at. But she has not admitted anything. She is not she didn't admit uh, maybe not. She, not she didn't admit wrongdoing as yeah. part of the SEC settlement under the Obama administration if you remember yeah. they used to require mm-hmm. uh, and it's some sort of admission of wrongdoing and then mm-hmm. under the Trump administration they've stopped doing that so right. they didn't require Ugh, she's to lucky do it. Trump got elected I guess <laughs> wow but so I think criminal charges are, yeah. are very uh, there's a very distinct possibility of criminal is charges there an here. email trail where she's saying I know this isn't true probably not she's too clever for that I don't know if there's an email trail. I, I, uh, I, I can't say that I have email evidence myself, but when you read my book and mm-hmm. you put it all together, yeah. oh. it's impossible to think she didn't that know. she wasn't aware no. of what was going on. Well, although I mean, that might be a defense she'll have. So I wanted to finish up. We have just a few more minutes um, to talk about sort of this, despite Theranos, which I think put a black eye. It was Theranos and then Uber. It was like bad Silicon Valley all over the place. There are a lot of really interesting medical device companies, a lot of prominent tech people involved in medical. Like I was saying, Color, which is a cancer genomics thing. There's 23andMe, which has gone through the... A lot of problems with the FDA, but it seems on track to right. be creating a really interesting company. Um, maybe you're telling me wrong, but it seems like it, all these areas, a lot of stuff around DNA, a lot of stuff, um, I'm thinking cardia, which is interesting, the EKG stuff. Um, every day, I, a new one. And again, I'm not a doctor. I don't have any expertise in the area. How do you assess that? Because tech is getting big. into And Larry Ellison, speaking of which— Life extension, Google, right, life right. extension. Nobody wants to die. Um, all kinds of AI, putting your brain on, like, right. everything. But all these companies are going to have to deal with peer review, and they're mm-hmm. going to have to deal with the FDA. I right. mean, there's just no going around it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Elizabeth Holmes tried to get around it. And, and well, this, Cardi just got an result. FDA approval on its, its technology. I'm saying they are cooperating. So right. where do you see tech playing in the healthcare space? I, I think it's, it's Not only— Not biotech, but tech, AI. And yeah, things. I mean, there, there is a convergence. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think the convergence is going to continue, um, and it's warranted. You know, there there are a lot of um, uh, engineering advances that lend themselves to being married with uh, you know uh, medical advances. So I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. 
but I think the, the Theranos story is a cautionary tale about mm-hmm. how not to go about it right. and how not to uh, model yourself too much after the computer industry in the traditional Silicon Valley because you have to remember, always remember, that patients' lives and patients' health is at stake. Absolutely, but I don't see them doing that. It's really interesting because right now I just was at something the other day and they're like, AI will replace radiologists. Like, and You know, when you think about it, probably that's the case. Probably like radiologists aren't as accurate as a computer would be to di- looking at screens or diagnostics. Eventually, AI and, and it's whatever it becomes will be good at diagnostics, will be good at basic health care. We'll, you know, there I've seen robots that are um, surgical robots you've seen and you've yep. seen uh, some of these. I saw a... Um, I think it was at MIT that would that dealt with minor. There's like ten or twelve things that people come to the emergency room that are relatively easy and cost savings if it wasn't people dealing with them. They're using robot faces to do it. They couldn't get the eyes right. They can't ever get the eyes right. But you see it. You see them yeah. moving in that direction. You see the money going towards it. A lot of these tech people are getting older. They absolutely don't want to die. Um, they're doing everything from nootropics to, uh, you know, uh, microdosing to this. I just interviewed Michael Pollan about the LSD. They're all, it's a really interesting shift for Silicon Valley. Right. Um, I was just watching a, a season four episode of uh, the, sh- the HBO show yeah. the other day. And <laughs> oh, the Blood tra- Boy. The Blood Boy and the yeah. transfusions. Yeah, that's, yeah. They're um, doing it. I trust me. Yeah. It's fascinating. Their, their interest in it is huge and they feel like they can apply computer principles to it. But you're saying and maybe the, not. Well, I mean, that may be, but they're going to have to prove it by publishing in scientific papers and by, um, you know, subjecting their their innovations to peer review. Mm-hmm. They're going to have to, to some extent, to a large extent, accept the rules of medical research. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos did not accept the rules of uh, medical research and tried to get around them and to ignore them. And the result is this fiasco. All right. But in that case, bad product doesn't work. Do you see uh, the medical industry being too slow and too not willing to break certain things? I mean, you know, the famous Facebook mechanism is move fast and break things. That's not working out well for them right now. Um, But but conceptually, what moves on the flip side, what moves the medical industry forward because you can see our healthcare system's broken, the way we get diagnosed, the way there's got to be something or not. Yeah, not I mean, at all. I, I'm just I, thinking I of someone who just is relatively intelligent, but it seems as if it should be. The way medicine is done is has, has no, even just records, everything just doesn't seem to get. Yeah. Moving. I mean, I, I think there's, a, there's been a lot of uh, progress. There's been innovation. I, I would argue that the U.S. healthcare system is broken for uh, for reasons other than innovation, um, but uh, could there be uh, could could some innovation happen even faster? And uh, could it benefit from a sort of the the boldness mm-hmm. of of people in the valley? Sure, but I, I still think that ultimately they will have to deal mm-hmm. with uh, publishing, with uh, subjecting their innovation to, to peer review, and and with explaining what they're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, with s- some degree of transparency. Right. Yeah, and they don't seem to like to do that. I was just, uh, you know, they were all, I was at an event the other day and they were all complaining with the FDA and I was like, too bad. Like you have to, like it was really, you know, and they were saying, what about this? Why, why can't we do this? Why why can't we is kind of a really interesting thing. And not everybody is a liar like this this group at Theranos. They're liars. I mean, that's, if you that's really right. want I mean, to boil it down. They, not they, all of them are. They're just. They, I like to think this was an outlier. Yeah. That, you know, this, this was uh uh, a lot of uh, bad things that were extreme mm-hmm. uh, that aren't going to be common going forward in, in Silicon Valley. But in other ways, it was also representative of a certain, you know, hubris and, right. and arrogance um, uh, because she and, and her boyfriend, Sonny, you know, didn't even really make the effort to understand what was going on mm-hmm. in this field of blood diagnostics right. and, and what other companies just were working like a, on. a good thing. They just thought that at the same time as they were committing fraud, they, they also had convinced themselves that their malfunctioning prototype was the greatest thing humanity, you know, had ever well, worked on. Well, it's interesting. On. It's like any great grifter, they believe. Their own lies, right? Right. right, right. I mean, seriously, like when you think about it. But it, it does, you know, it'll be interesting to see where healthcare is going with the combination of tech. And then, lastly, when you think about what's interesting now from in healthcare, what are you what are you fixated on now? Besides, this is getting made into a movie, right? Yep, Jennifer yep. Lawrence is attached, and apparently, <laughs> Deadline did announce the the uh, screenwriter. Right. There's a, uh, a screenwriter has been hired mm-hmm. um, to to do the screenplay. Uh, the movie will be directed by Adam McKay, and Jennifer Lawrence is attached to play Elizabeth Holmes. Mm-hmm. 
What what am I looking at? Wait, who's playing you? I don't I don't know yet. Is, you're in it. Pro- though, probably right? some unknown actor. Are you are you in it? You've got to be in I it. I don't know. I haven't seen the screenplay has yet to be, be written. It. It's going to be written. You got to be in it. Come on. I, I guess I'm, I hope I'm in it. You got to um, have like and, you and, and then some George cool actor plays who's me. playing George Schultz. <laughs> I mean, come on, think about it. Who would you like to play you, John? Come on. I think the guy who plays Thor would be the, the right choice. Because <laughs> he seems like a Wall Street <laughs> Journal reporter. I've never seen a Wall Street Journal reporter. It looks like Chris Hemsworth. I'm sorry to tell you. I was supposed to be working the, there. The diameter of our biceps. Yeah, is, exactly. Uh, similar. Yeah. Um, so what are you interested in next? Um, you know, I haven't thought all that much about it. Uh, the, the Theranos story uh, was sort of an opportunistic uh, uh, dive into the, Still the got some laps, field too. of uh, blood diagnostics. I hadn't reported all that much about Silicon Valley, and so it also uh, kind of plunged me into this world of Silicon Valley that, that I didn't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would guess my next act is going to be in Silicon Valley, so yeah. some, some other, not necessarily healthcare related. Oh, please come. But some, some other Silicon Valley saga. We could use your help. We could use your help. Please come and ruin things. I'm leaving soon. So, you know what I mean? I got someone's got to go. I mean, you'd be, oh my God, it'd be so good. It's a good time. I'm going to cover Silicon Valley from Brooklyn. Okay. No, don't, don't, no. That's no, but what I'll, a lot I'll, of I'll come often, do. though. All right. Okay. I think you should because there's a lot going on there. There's a lot of really interesting, especially they're want, not wanting to die. That's their, or putting like Im, embeds in your eyes and they're, they're going places that should be interesting for someone like you to cover. And, I think, I don't know what they're talking about, but you'll be able to tell me. Anyway, John, thank you so much. This is John Carreyrou. He is an author of Bad Blood, Secrets and Lies in a Silicon Valley Startup. It's about the Theranos scandal, but he also writes about healthcare for the Wall Street Journal. Um, and it was great talking to you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks very much for having me. fantastic book. It was, the, the stories were fantastic. You should read everything he writes. Thanks very much. If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show. You can find more episodes of Recode Decode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Or just visit recode.net slash podcasts for more. If you have a minute, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell other people about the show. This helps them discover great interviews just like this one. Now that you're done with this, you should check out our other Recode Radio podcasts. On Recode Media with Peter Kafka, you'll hear no-nonsense interviews with some of the smartest people in media and entertainment. I host Too Embarrassed to Ask, where we answer all of your questions about consumer tech. And on Recode Replay, you can find audio from all of Recode's live events, including the Code Conference coming up and Code Media. And we have some more things in the hopper. You'll see. Thank you for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. And thanks to our editor, Joel Robbie, and our producer, Eric Johnson. I'll be back here on Wednesday. Tune in then. 